So far this year, we've studied 10 psalms together, and we arrive at our 11th this morning. And in the previous 10 psalms, every psalm but two of them has highlighted the judgment of God on the wicked. That's quite a consistent theme. In Psalm 1, the wicked are like chaff, the wind drives away, and they perish. In Psalm 2, verse 5, God will terrify the wicked in His wrath. And in chapter 2.12, those who reject the Son will perish with the nations. In Psalm 3.7, David calls on God to strike the wicked and to break their teeth. In Psalm 5, verses 5 and 6, the evildoers will not stand before the Lord. They will be condemned before the Lord. In Psalm 6, verse 10, the enemies of God shall bear shame and trouble For all their iniquity. In Psalm 7 verse 6. David calls on God to arise. In anger. In holy anger. Against his enemies. In Psalm 9 5. God will make the wicked perish. In Psalm 10 15. David calls on God to bring the wicked to account. We've seen here. And not even exhaustively seen. Among the first 10 Psalms. Nearly every psalm we've looked at so far, the judgment of God on the wicked is emphasized. So there's an immediate takeaway we could notice here. The wrath of God is not a subtle theme in the psalms. It's been in nearly every psalm we've seen so far, and including today. The psalmists rejoice in the righteousness of God, even though the righteousness of God will mean holy judgment on the wicked. If there is no judgment upon the wicked, there is no righteousness in God. The Lord is righteous. Psalm 11.7 tells us this morning, David says the Lord is righteous. Judgment from God is the result of the righteousness of God confronting wickedness. We have to think that through. The judgment from God is the result of the righteousness of God confronting wickedness. If you find the notion difficult that God will judge the wicked, then you must think first through what it means for God to be holy and what it means for God to be righteous. You must think through what it means for God to be love. That reflection is especially important. Because some Bible readers have wrongly concluded that if God is love, then He will have no wrath upon sinners. My friends, it is because God is love that He has righteous indignation upon the wicked. He does not have wrath at the expense of love or because He is love... It must exclude any judgment upon sinners. The Gospel Coalition released an excellent article online this past week on how wrath, while not being an attribute of God, is the result of the attributes of God. The author of the article, Jeremy Treat, said, I love my children deeply. And when their disobedience leads to harm, I have an anger that doesn't drive out my love, but comes alongside it. 
Anger, he says, arises because of love. He says, because I love my children, I'd rightfully be angry if someone attempted to hurt them. If I didn't have anger in that situation, you might question whether I do in fact love my children. So here's the connection we need to make together theologically. That God, being a God of perfect love, will have righteous indignation upon sin and the wicked. So the author of this article Dr. Treat, he says, we must understand wrath is not an attribute of God. God is love. God is holy. God is just. Never is it said God is wrath. Wrath is an expression of holy love. Wrath is an expression of holy love in the face of sin and evil. And it is so pertinent for our interpretation of Scripture and our growth and maturation as disciples of the Lord Jesus that we affirm the love of God and that therefore because God is love, He has righteous judgment upon the wicked. We must not be those who read superficially the Word of God and see things about God that seem assuring like, well, God is love and therefore exclude what the Bible says all over the place and through Throughout the first 10 Psalms we've looked at so far, God is righteous and holy, and therefore the wicked should fear. The wicked should turn from their evil and they should flee to God. As we study Psalm 11 today, we see David's confidence in the justice and righteousness of God. Because God is just, he will bring the wicked to account. Because he is love, he will vindicate his people and subdue all his enemies. Because God is holy, David can trust that God's judgment will be perfect. And in verse, in the superscription before verse 1, we see again a psalm of David. A string of them throughout chapters 1 through 10. Once again, a psalm of David. He says... A profession of faith in verse 1. The first part of verse 1 is his conviction. What is it that David professes to believe? In the Lord I take refuge. You will take your refuge in something. It is unavoidable. We will seek our deliverance and our solace in something. What is David's profession? His profession of faith is that in the Lord, in Yahweh, I take my refuge. Yahweh is the refuge of Israel's king. A refuge is an image of protection, isn't it? It's an impenetrable location. Yahweh is the refuge of David. David is there. Yahweh is his protector and defender. This is not the first psalm we've looked at together, is it? We know that previous psalms have shown us something about David's life. He has faced threats and affliction. So we know that having God as our refuge, what it also doesn't mean. Having God as our refuge doesn't mean we're exempt from life in a fallen world. The righteous get sick. The righteous face tragedies. The people of God have hostilities around them. Uncertainties that lie before them. Taking refuge in God is what we do in the face of those things. We take refuge in God. And what it means in the Psalms is we turn to God as our hope and trust. All other ground is sinking sand. We believe that. That God alone is a solid rock for His people. 
So we turn to God in prayer and trust and hope. That's what it means for David to say, Yahweh is my refuge. Now what is it that David believes about God that would make that sensible? What is it about God David knows that means God is a refuge that not only David flees to, but that we should be like David and profess faith like this? Well, God is sovereign over heaven and earth. David knows this. And because God is sovereign, there is no higher authority to call upon. When he says, in Yahweh is my refuge, David has appealed to the greatest and sovereign ruler of all. And David also knows about God, that God is perfectly righteous. So there's no one with better judgment about anyone or anything or any situation. When David says, Yahweh is my refuge, he is going to the one who is altogether righteous. God is all-powerful. David knows this about God. There is no one therefore stronger than God or mightier who will prevail against God. David is right to trust in God as his refuge, for God is all-powerful. God is also unwaveringly faithful. So there is no one more trustworthy for David. No one more dependable than God. David has fleed to God. He flees to God because God is sovereign, righteous, all-powerful, and unwaveringly faithful. David's hope in God is reasonable. Knowing what he knows about God, it is the best thing in his sound mind that he can do. In the face of God who is sovereign, righteous, and all-powerful, and totally faithful and trustworthy, it would be absurd for David to not flee to him. Why wouldn't he? Would he see something as more dependable, something more secure, something more able to deliver? There is nothing outside God in that way. David's hope in God is sure, because he knows God. God is going to work For David's good, what David's enemies mean for evil. David says, and rightly so, in the Lord I take refuge. It's a profession of faith. This profession of faith seems to also be a response to words that others are saying around David. The rest of verse 1 and through verse 3, David's going to supply what others are saying. David's going to supply what others are telling him, and he does not agree with what they're saying. So he's going to report these words at the end of verse 1 and through verse 3, so that we can see his confident response of trust in spite of what others are telling him. So what is it that they're saying? Here's the summary of it at the end of verse 1 and through verse 3. They are addressing David with words. David responds. In verse 1, how can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? We have to recognize he's addressing words that are being spoken so that we see he's not talking here to God at the end of verse 1. God is his refuge and he's not saying to God, how can you say to my soul? He's saying this to people who have been urging him to do something. And they have spoken it to the very depths of who they are. David, here's what we think you should do. This is in your best interest, David. To his very soul, they have spoken these words. David's response is, how can you say this? There's a sense of disbelief in David's words. He can't believe they told him what he's going to tell us they told him. How can you say this, he says. Flee like a bird to your mountain. The simile here, like a bird, is probably meant to denote that a bird can move quickly and a bird can go really high from the ground to a mountain. Be like a bird, David. You need to flee to a mountain. 
And they want David to go to a mountain because apparently in whatever danger David would be in, the mountain would be a place of refuge. It's massive. It has places to hide. A mountain can be intimidating to climb. It can deter pursuers from looking for David. So they say to David, flee like a bird to a mountain. You see, David needs a refuge. And the reason he's professing what he does at the beginning of verse 1 is because Yahweh is his refuge. And there are people around him wanting David to take refuge in something else. Flee like a bird to a mountain, David. David says, how can you say that? Yahweh is my refuge. Not an actual mountain. Yahweh. The importance of the king of Israel saying this is because in Psalm 2, verse 12, the second psalm we dealt with, he says to the rulers of the earth, Blessed are all who take refuge in God, in his son, the king. You know what David does? David is embodying and living out the hope of Psalm 2, verse 12. Blessed are all who take refuge in the son. Well, then David's hope is in Yahweh. He has done what all should do. Confess that God is their hiding place. Now, who are these people? These people David is summarizing. Not a lot of information is given, is it? Are these David's counselors in his administration? Maybe. Maybe these are people who David would want to weigh in on circumstances. Something has arisen and he calls them. What do you guys think? Let's put our heads together. And they say, well, here's what we think you should do, David. And David says, I can't even believe you would say that. Are they his counselors? Are they his friends? Or are they hostile to David? Maybe they see an opportunity to get the king out of Jerusalem. Oh, David, you know, I think it's time for you to go. You need to flee to the mountain like a bird. You know, we're just not given enough information to know for sure what characterizes these people. Here's what we do know in David's response. He doesn't like what they say. How can you tell me this, he says. And they seem to be words describing an escalating situation. David is in some kind of danger. We know that because the reason they're telling him to flee is because of verse 2. Verse 2, for behold, they say to him, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. Well, now we have the reason for the counsel given in verse 1. David needs to flee because these wicked, talked about in verse 2, are apparently engaged in actions against David. He's in danger. And we know that they don't have some future plan and they're just taking their time. They've got a bow that's bent and an arrow on the string. Sounds rather imminent. Sounds trouble like trouble is very near. So the wicked hold this weapon, right? They've bent the bow, which means they're focused. They're ready to fire. The arrow is on the string. They're ready to release the arrows in the dark. Shooting in the dark at the upright in heart. Let's be clear on what's meant and not meant. They're not shooting into the dark as if they don't know where the arrow is going to land. The wicked are in the dark, shooting at what they see. The dark is not concealing the righteous. The dark is concealing the wicked. This is a position of clever strategy, like an assassin, waiting in the wings, crouching in the dark. The dark is concealing the wicked. They are shooting in the dark at the upright who are not concealed. They're not shooting at what they can't see. They're in the dark hiding, shooting at what they can see. 
And what they see is the upright in heart. That's another phrase in the Psalms or in the Proverbs. Wisdom literature uses this language to talk about the people of God. It's not because David is so good internally. It's because David is upright, knowing God. David knows God. His relationship with God has been spiritually stabilized. He's been reconciled to God because David has flown to God as his refuge. Why is David upright in heart? Because God is David's refuge. Verse 3, or verse 2, the upright in heart, is true because of the profession of verse 1. When your refuge is almighty God, your standing is such that his righteousness and grace has been counted to you, not by any merit of your own. Unconditional, steadfast mercy and love from God. David is upright in heart as a result of God being his refuge. These people are telling David, the wicked have bent the bow. Well, who are these wicked? Well, we don't know details much about them either. Are they part of Absalom's rebellion? A rebellion that the superscription of Psalm 3 told us, you know, Absalom had colluded with others against his father David to oust him from Jerusalem. Are these some of those? Maybe. Is this some foreign adversary outside the promised land that's risen against the king? We just don't know enough about the specifics. What we know is the aim of the wicked. They aim at the upright in heart. That includes David. And here in the psalm, it's first and foremost David. He's their target. The target is Israel's king. They want his demise. So these people, David is summarizing, who say, you need to flee like a bird to the mountain because look at what the wicked, they're armed and ready to go. The arrow's on the string. Their aim has already been adjusted, David. So if the foundations are destroyed, they say, what can the righteous do? And these people that he's quoting They are worried about a deteriorating situation. It's looking pretty grim. The foundations are destroyed. Now that could mean physically maybe attack on the walls of the city or the foundations that are the the physical, uh, actual brick and mortar facilities of the land. It could be metaphorical. And I think it's probably that. That these foundations are about the coherence and unity that stabilizes their social life. And David is being opposed, and the wicked are taking aim, and they are saying to David here, well, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? So he's saying, flee, flee, David. And this passive verb, are destroyed, no doubt means that the foundations are being destroyed by those who are the wicked in this passage. The foundations of their region, no doubt. Their social life. It's destabilizing for the people. They need foundations that are firm. And, and if the foundations begin to be destroyed by the wicked, then there is a destabilizing result that David and his fellow citizens will feel. You can think of maybe the cultural norms of their day, the various social deeds and values that work for their common good. If the wicked oppose those things, then the language, the foundations are destroyed, is the result that fits that situation. These people feel helpless. They feel helpless. They're looking around at their contemporary situation and they say, what can the righteous do? The impression from the quote is that they're in a situation beyond repair and the most reasonable act for David is to get out of there. 
Modern day readers of the Psalms can feel the angst of this when they read in different parts throughout the world. No doubt people in our own nation can look in Psalm 11 and think about the acts of wickedness that seek to erode foundations. And do you ever wonder what can the righteous do? And maybe you think I should flee like a bird to a mountain. (laughs) Sounds like a good idea maybe. Well David here, he says how can you tell me this? At the end of verse 1 through verse 3, he summarizes their statement to respond to it. Now, his opening profession of faith, he says, in the Lord I take refuge. But he picks up this idea in verse 4. What else does he know about God? You see, what David believes his contemporaries need is perspective. The perspective of the Bible. The situation of the wicked demolishing the foundations. He's not saying that's not happening. He's saying that's not the only thing that's true. And if your response is only based on what the wicked do, rather than also in what you know to be true about God, then you may simply be living out of fear. And David knows that the wicked are those who should be afraid. Not the people who know God. So David says in verse 4, and in verses 4 through 7 really, his conviction here, where the Lord reigns in righteousness. He says in verse 4, the Lord is in His holy temple. Listen friends, they can try to erode all the foundations around David's day and in ours, but the wear and tear is not happening on the throne of the living God. His throne is never unstable. This is a strong conviction of David's. And it supports and justifies his praying to God. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. You see these wicked, they think they're so mighty. They think they're so clever. They think their strategies cannot be brought down. But David says, here's what I know to be true. The Lord reigns. He reigns over all. He is in His holy temple. His throne is in heaven. Some readers here recognize, well, David's son Solomon is the one who builds the temple. So is this an earthly temple that's meant? It could be that that verse 4 has these two lines parallel. That the holy temple and God's throne in heaven are meaning the same thing. Because on occasion, the tabernacle before Solomon's temple was still called a sanctuary or temple. But here... It may mean more than just this earthly sanctuary. David had brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And it was the representation of God's presence and reign with the people. You know what the earthly sanctuary represented? Heavenly enthronement and rule over heaven and earth. So if they were to destroy the temple, they were only going after what was to symbolize something. If they ever tried to destabilize the region of Jerusalem, they were just going after what would be the earthly copy or reflection of some greater reality that could never be overthrown. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Here, this means that God reigns in power over all things. I don't think we're meant to imagine an actual and literal throne. What does a throne symbolize? God's throne is in heaven. It's to symbolize power and sovereignty. 
God has authority and power which justifies David's confidence in him. So if these wicked are eroding the foundations and the people around David say, what can the righteous do? He says the most important question is, what is it that the righteous know? What they know is that God reigns over all things and it is the wicked who should tremble before him. God has authority that supports David's confidence in him. God is not unaware of the distress David is facing. Here in verse 4, we read that the Lord is in his holy temple. His throne is in heaven. And what about his eyes? What does he behold? His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. Which means God looks at his world with perfect knowledge and discernment. To test here is a word that means to examine. To thoroughly examine. To reveal through examination. One writer uses the metaphor of testing metals with fire. To test metals with fire was to reveal dross and to separate it from the purity that was desirable from the metallurgist. If we were to take that metaphor and God's eye examines and reveals, he is able to examine and know the hearts of his people and the hearts of the wicked who oppose him. Nothing escapes his sight. What can the righteous do? Will the righteous turn to God? God is my refuge, David says. Why? Because God is enthroned over all things and knows perfectly what is going on. And because the wicked are known by God, they should tremble at the idea of their judgment. So God is not unaware. It even says his eyelids test the children of man, which might speak to the idea of focusing on something. Have you ever been watching something and then you just sort of squinted to really look at it? You were just really taking it in and your eyelids moved. I think that's the picture here. It's the idea of God's heart and and being, being fully aware of and nothing escaping his judgment. He has perfect sight. He is near to scrutinize and examine. And yet he is transcendent in reign and power. The wicked can do their worst, but God is not a God who panics. God's never had a day of panic. When the wicked seek to do their worst, he never trembles, he never flees. He causes the wicked to panic instead. In Psalm 2, the picture is of people conspiring together against the anointed one of God. And in Psalm 2, 4, it says that he who sits in heavens laughs at their plans. It's utterly absurd that the wicked would gather together against the Lord. He holds them in derision, Psalm 2, 4 says. And then in verse 5, he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Friends, we can be those easily dismayed and discouraged by circumstantial things going on in the world and within our own lives around us culturally and socially. We are not those whom God has called to be afraid. But the media industries exist to keep you afraid of everything. Every channel you turn on and every post that you see on social media. One additional thing to be worried and fearful about. I want to say to you this morning that God is our refuge... He has all authority in heaven and on earth. 
He sees with perfect knowledge and unwavering sight all that happens in the world. And you can fully trust Him. He will not fail. We need not live in fear. But the wicked, they should tremble from sunup to sunset if they had a moment's reflection on what their egregious iniquity is accruing for them before the righteous and holy God who has appointed a day of their judgment. In verse 5, the Lord tests the righteous and it says his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. The Lord tests the righteous, which means to examine and to know the truth of. And as the Lord tests his people and as the Lord tests the children of man, what is revealed in the uh, unrighteous and in the wicked is their deeds against God and against neighbor. And the Lord despises it. It says his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. In other words, God is opposed to them. And it is a terrifying reality for those of good spiritual sense to have the Bible say to them, the living God of heaven and earth is opposed to you. They need to think through what that means. Because they love what's not God. And they love what God hates. It says here that the wicked unpacked at the end of verse 5 are those who love violence in this case. That's probably because those who've come against David in the circumstances of Psalm 11 intend his demise. They tend to do whatever they need to do to accomplish their will at even his physical expense. They don't care the peril he's in. They love violence because it gets them what they want. They can't love violence and love their neighbor because to love violence here means the love of committing it. The love of doing it against others. The Lord detests the wicked. It doesn't tell us the result for the righteous here. He tests the righteous. Well, what about God's response to them? Well, the righteous, it tells us what happens for them at the end of verse 7. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. So as God tests the children of man, the righteous and the wicked are clear to him. Crystal clear to them. And the paths for the righteous and the wicked differ. God's response to them is different. God, his soul, it says, hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Doesn't have to stay that way. You know what changes from the Lord opposing the wicked to God being their refuge? They turn to God as their refuge and hope. We come into this world, friends, bent Fractured on the inside in a way that our affections and our desires pursue and long to manifest what's not going to please the Lord and not going to benefit and love neighbor, but to live with ourself exalted above all things. Just trying to do what we want to do as if we're the moral authority in all things. And that that foolish living leads not only to self-destructive ends, It brings demise and heartbreak to neighbor and ultimately our folly that we sow, it reaps judgment. doesn't have to be this way. To live lives where God is not opposed to us means we are those who have flown to God. We have have flown to Him as our refuge and our deliverer 
And therefore, not only is He not opposed to us, God is for us and our everlasting refuge. That's what's true for God toward His people. Don't you want that? In Psalm 11, doesn't that pull at you thinking, I want God to be that for me? Friend, you can live in a way, even this past week, this past month, in these early months of 2023, that you know you've been living against the Lord. And today, flee to Him as your refuge. He will not be opposed to you. He will welcome you. He will uphold you. He will save you. David's prayer for the wicked entails their judgment. It's graphic. In verse 6, he says, Let him, let God, rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. That is a graphic description of the wicked. Their judgment. He prays for This imagery that is judgment to be upon their heads, raining down coals, fire, sulfur, scorching wind. Thinking about scorching wind is devastating enough. If you've got an agricultural setting and you have scorching wind that devastates your crops. Or if you've got this water supply and scorching wind comes upon it and blows things into it or works to dry it up. All scorching wind can wreak havoc in a region. But the imagery of raining coals and the imagery of sulfur... It's especially connected as a pair of words reaching back to Genesis, isn't it? In Genesis 19, God pours out His wrath on Sodom and Gomorrah. And in Genesis 19, verse 24, it says, The Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. In Genesis 19, righteous judgment upon the wicked. That was the scene. David knows the Bible. And he knows that the wicked deserve the judgment of God. And he knows God is going to pour out his judgment. And he has images historically in the word of God about what righteous judgment had once involved in Genesis 19. He prays in Psalm 11 verse 6, God, bring down your righteous judgment on their deeds. Bring it down, Lord. Upon their human rebellious heads would you rain down coals and fire and sulfur and scorching wind. That'll be the portion of their cup. The cup is pictured as a cup of wrath. He's saying, God, the the portion that's in this cup, pour in wrath. That they would take that. This means historical judgments like Sodom and Gomorrah are shadows, types, Of the final judgment to come upon the wicked. The day of the Lord that will come when the nations are brought to account before God. There are foreshadowings of that day. Every earthly judgment is one. Genesis 19 was one. The reason I'm using this language about the final judgment is because of the language Revelation uses about the final judgment. Listen to Revelation 20. Revelation 20 verse 10. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. Where the beast and the false prophet were. In Revelation 21 verse 8. The future of the wicked he says. Will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. Which is the second death. The judgment imagery from Genesis 19. And other places where the historical judgments upon the wicked were poured out. They are foreshadowings of the second death. Which there is the condemnation of the wicked on the day of judgment. Why does David pray this? It's strong. It's graphic. The fulfillment of it is certain. The Bible tells us this at the end of the New Testament. The day has been appointed. Why does David pray this in verse 7? He tells you the reason. For the Lord 
is righteous. There you have it. The righteousness of God will mean the perfect judgment and administration of judgment on the wicked. So he prays what he does in verse 6 because of what he knows about God in verse 7. For God the Lord is righteous. And because this is true about God, the wicked will not prevail. Because this is true about God, they will face his holy wrath. In verse 5, we were told that the Lord abhors the one who does violence. Well, now in verse 7, we're told what the Lord loves. What does the Lord love? Well, it tells us the Lord is righteous, so he loves righteous deeds. Oh, we would no doubt long to be more faithful than we are. If we are reflective upon our Christian lives, we know our need every moment by moment and hour by hour for the Lord's grace. You know, when the hymn writer says, I need thee every hour, that's real. The sense of desperation we have for the ongoing mercy of God, because we know in so many ways we fall short. But because of the renewing and transforming grace of God, we are not what we once were. We heard it in the scripture reading today from Colossians 1. We have been brought out of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. We didn't find our way there. We were brought. We didn't finally work our way out because we tried hard enough and looked long enough. God took us. And out of darkness we were brought into the light of the kingdom of His beloved Son. And there we are as His disciples in the light. We are not what we once were. We are not yet all that we will be. Oh, His grace is operative and will not fail. Oh, what His Spirit has begun, it will complete. The Spirit of God, He will complete all that has begun in us by His grace and for the glory of God. The Lord loves righteous deeds. So the Lord looks on our obedience. It is not perfect. And He loves what He sees. He loves His disciples. We are so loved by God with His steadfast, merciful heart. We cannot conceive the heights and depths and width and grandeur of the love of God for us. But it's true. Gloriously true. He loves righteous deeds. He's not just talking about what He Himself does. Of course, all the deeds of the Lord are righteous. He's talking here about His people. He's abhorred by what the wicked do, but he loves what his people do. He loves his people. He loves their obedience. He loves that they look to him as, his ref- as their refuge. What will be their end? What will their future entail? The upright shall behold his face. And I just want you to know, friends, that a glimpse of that outweighs every earthly sorrow put together. Every earthly sorrow, every trial and hardship put on one end of the scale and then there is coming into our full culmination of the saints of God in the future that outweighs it all, the weight of glory that far outweighs our momentary sufferings. The upright shall behold His face. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, Jesus says. That is coming to behold Him. We were made for this. This is what theologians in history call the the beatific vision. It's the vision that makes happy. 
It's the vision that thrills the soul. This is the soul thrilling in. This is the heart delighting in for which we were made. There is nothing more greater than this. Everything leads to this that we might fully know as we have been known. And to the degree that we can as creatures be made and glorified and sanctified by the work of God. To behold we shall. This is the culmination of all our searching. This is the culmination of every desire for happiness. To behold His face. And we learn in the Gospels that we will behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. So that the risen Son of God who reigns, the glorified King of all, the one who beholds the Father, the one who dwells in light unapproachable, we shall behold and approach. The vision of God's glory in Christ is our soul's created end. It will be our everlasting delight. There is nothing greater or more profound. One of the reasons we know that boredom is an impossibility in the age to come is because we shall in our souls behold Him. John Calvin said, We shall openly behold God reigning in all His majesty. We can't even conceive of this. We don't have something in this world that we can say, yes, this to come, it's like that over here. There's not a thing like that in this world that we can say, this experience, like there's only shadows of it, only glimpses of it, of, extri- uh, of uh, surpassing delights and glorious joys that fill us, ecstasies in this life that then fade. So we don't know by experience what this is like. So the promise is there. The upright shall behold His face. And that is because the cup of wrath will not be ours to drink. The cup was given to Christ in our place. Why is it that this in verse 7 will be the end for the righteous? Why is it that we who know God will walk with God and know God in unmediated communion and glory and delight? Why is it that this will be the case? Friends, because on the cross, Jesus drank the cup. It is because the cup of judgment he took to his own body and life and gave his life for us. So we're speaking figuratively here about the cup, right? We're thinking about what it represents. What is it that this cup means? Well, in Psalm 11 and in the other parts of the Old Testament, confirmed in the New, this cup given to the wicked is their judgment. And Jesus says, this cup, this cup of the new covenant, I will drink this for you. What's being formed there as a substitutionary work of atonement is done by the grace and mercy of God. Friend, we have the end here described in verse 7. The upright beholding His face. God, our refuge, our merciful deliverer, our saving high tower. Why is it that we have this for us? Because on the cross, the Lord Jesus took our sins and He drank the cup that we might behold Him in glory. That is the gospel. Believe it. It's good news for your soul. Flee to God. He's our refuge. Let's pray.